Hello, uh, my name is Greg Muller and I'm the instructor for the course Food Toxicology. We'd like to welcome you back once again. Today, uh, the subject of the lecture is going to be the history of U.S. food regulation. And, and uh, those of you that uh, are, are new to this field uh, might ask uh, about the, the intersection of food and regulation. If you think about food and the food system in its purest sense, uh, when we were all eating out of our uh, own gardens, our own farms, uh, there was a complete control between us and the food that we eat. As we started broadening out, as we started leaving the farms, coming to urban areas, we had more and more distance between the food we eat and the production sources. And so when you have that distance, there is perhaps in an economic system the opportunity or in perhaps even an incentive to cheat. And cheating uh, sometimes had toxic consequences. As well, there were toxic consequences because people didn't know that certain types of additives to food would indeed cause illness. And so we now have the evolution of a development of a system of food regulation in the United States. Purpose of today's lecture is to go back in history, uh, mostly for the past hundred years or so, and look at how the U.S. Uh, legal system responded to the outrage of the public. Uh, in a certain sense, we have laws and regulations in a democracy because there is a dissatisfaction with the status quo. So we link that outrage when someone gets poisoned, uh, when there was a, a national incident or a collective feeling of dissatisfaction among the electorate that we then have a government that responds with regulation and law. Our learning objectives here today, we're going to try to understand the historical context of U.S. food law. We're going to try to discuss the public outrage leading to the Meat Inspection Act of 1906. A hundred years ago, the first key piece of national legislation in the United States. We're going to review the circumstances leading up to the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 as well. It stimulated a tremendous amount of information uh, development. Uh, muckraking is the term that was used in the early 1900s in terms of investigative journalism, if you will. Survey the regulatory history of the Miller Pesticide Amendments to the FDCA, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938, and that will give us a basis of some of the pesticide and food additive law and regulation that are with us today. We're going to try to examine what is referred to as the Delaney Clause uh, to the uh, FDCA, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. The Delaney Clause will come up many times during this course, Food Toxicology, because it is one of the underpinning pieces of regulation. It's the first time that we actually had absolutes introduced into U.S. food law. And then we're going to try to survey some other U.S food regulatory agencies to give you an idea of the landscape out there in terms of regulation and management of the U.S. food system. As you well know, we are becoming more and more a global society and in fact U.S. food law now has to interface with international food law and we'll talk about some of those interfaces as well. Well, food law and its history, uh, it goes back to the ancient times. In fact, early Hebrews and Egyptians had some regulations or laws uh, that for handling of meat especially and it had a lot to do with with the purity uh, and microbial contamination uh, in fact uh, uh, Hasidic law uh, actually banned the eating of certain types of food products pork for instance because uh, pigs were dirty animals Greeks and Roman law actually prohibited watering down of wine and short measures of grain and oils and so we actually see in antiquity many, many uh, incidents of food law being dictated to the society, uh, whether or not it was a dictatorship or a king or just a code of behavior or practices such as religious law. Well, in terms of the evolution of food laws, we have, as I said, uh, come away from the farm significantly during the Industrial Revolution. And with that, we have lost some of the control of the food supply. We no longer are food producers, the majority of us. In the United States, 
the number of people involved in agriculture now is on the order of two to four percent. That is significantly less than the 30, 40 percent that existed at the turn of the last century in about 1900. And so we have migrated away from the farm and in doing so have increased the distance between food production and food consumption. The aspects of a distributed food supply mean more reason to preserve, more reason to transport, process, and package. And all of those elements of the distributed food system have the ability to introduce toxins into the food supply. How do you eliminate or manage that? One of the answers, one of the responses is to establish standards of behavior, standards of practice, and legal standards so that we have a safe and pure food supply. Well, some of the regulatory problems that we actually faced early on were things like toxic colors. Uh, we moved away from using nature's colors, uh, typically plant extracts uh, in preservatives, and into more industrial revolution or chemical uh, additions, uh, food additives. There was also the advent of what were called patent or quack medicines. Uh, these quack medicines sometimes were nothing more than colored water uh, that were actually used as medicine. People would buy and sometimes pay significant amounts of money for what was represented as a cure, but in fact well, it was nothing close. In addition, many medicines at the time actually contained fairly toxic uh, uh, chemicals, uh, chemicals like opium and morphine, uh, even mercury uh, as uh, an antibiotic. In the U.S. Lewis and Clark expedition, uh, Mary Lewis uh, recounts in his journals his uh, uh, use of mercuricals, mercurical uh, chemicals, uh, drugs, if you will, to uh, cure uh, stomach ailments along the way. Uh, the fact that he died uh, with a significant amount of uh, uh, mental anguish and pain, uh, institutionalization, uh, essentially uh, is it perhaps a tribute to the or recognition of the neurotoxicity of mercury during his expeditions. In the U.S., we actually did have state food laws before we had national food laws. Massachusetts was the first in 1784, and violation actually was uh, uh, met with uh, severe uh, punishment, including uh, putting uh, folks in the stocks. There are about 200 state food laws passed in the late 1800s, and so the evolution of the agronomy society to the urban industrial society actually was also met on a local basis, local meaning state, uh, with new food laws to manage the uh, aspects of a distributed food system. But there was at this point in time no overriding national law. Some of the problems associated with that, there was uh, some states that had no laws. And so as you would cross state lines for interstate commerce, you would go from one area that had no laws to another area that had significant amount of regulation on the books. There was lack of enforcement. Uh, there was conflicts between states and numerous variations in labeling. And so there was a recognized need for a national or overarching U.S. body of regulation and law to manage, especially interstate commerce. Federal food law actually uh, came about to do a lot to individuals, and one of the most famous individuals in U.S. food law and regulation history was Harvey Washington Wiley. And in fact, uh, Harvey Wiley is, is perhaps uh, regarded as the godfather of pure food in the United States. He was a chemist from Purdue University in 1983, he was actually the chief of the USDA, U.S. Department of Agriculture Bureau of Chemistry. And we'll use the terms BOC or BOC quite often because that was the original uh, formulation, I, I guess, if you will, of uh, the uh, regulatory agency uh, we now know as the Food and Drug Administration. Well, as it turns out with... Uh, uh, Harvey Wiley, he actually was uh, somewhat of a government activist, uh, had a significant national reputation. He actually uh, was a firebrand of sorts as well as being a talented scientist. 
and his dissatisfaction with the food system of the United States at the turn of the century grew into a national uh, outrage. Uh, there was many problems. These were highlighted in many, many national publications like Good Housekeeping magazine. What he did, in fact, was to uh, expand this Bureau of Chemistry staff and capability. Let's define the problem. Let's use science to deal with what at that time was a, a very significant social and economic problem. Harvey Wiley established what were referred to as the poison squads in 1902-1904. We didn't have a very well-developed system of toxicological risk assessment at the turn of the century. In fact, uh, a lot of toxicology actually didn't start happening into the 20s and 30s and 40s. We started to identify good techniques, good practices in terms of laboratory evaluation of the risk of certain practices, certain chemicals. Um, what he did with these poison squads in 1902-1904 for a couple of years, he took local college students and, and staff at the VOC uh, and actually fed them in low doses of common food additives at the time that had a little bit of suspect. Now this sounds worse than it perhaps is. Uh, some of these food additives weren't exactly poisons, they were ones that were being used. But the idea was to look uh, in terms of their body fluids and clinical toxicity. Were there rashes developed, uh, upset stomachs, some intolerance of these particular additives that would merit some additional concern in terms of regulation or at least advisories on the correct levels of some of these additives to use in the food system. Um, one of the uh, actual ways that uh, the um, uh, challenges of the U.S. food system actually uh, significantly changed was uh, on the publication of Upton Sinclair's novel, The Jungle, in 1906. This actually focused on working conditions in the meat processing industry, uh, although it talked a lot about sanitary and unsanitary conditions in, in food processing. It actually uh, also had a very socialist, uh, sort of unfair to workers sort of theme to it. Uh, Upton Sinclair at the time was uh, regarded as a, uh, was a, a well-known socialist uh, uh, author. And in fact, uh, the idea, the acceptance of the jungle uh, was withheld a little bit because of is this a political muckraking uh, uh, adventure uh, to try to uh, uh, institute some, some unrest, or was this in fact uh, investigative journalism, if you will, for uh, meat processing? Uh, the yuck factor uh, that was represented in some of the text on the jungle actually led to a significant amount of public outrage. If I can do some reading here from the uh, jungle, give you an idea of the sense of, of uh, the descriptive writing in this particular book. There was never the least attention paid to what was cut up for sausage. There would come all the way back from Europe old sausage that had been rejected and that was moldy and white. It would be dosed with borax and glycerin and dumped into the hoppers and made over again for home consumption. There would be meat that had tumbled out on the floor and the dirt and the sawdust where the workers had trampled and spit uncounted billions of consumption germs. There would be meat stored in great piles and rooms and the water from leaky roofs would drip over it and thousands of rats would race about on it. It was too dark in these storage places to see well, but a man could run his hand over the piles and sweep off handfuls of the dried dung of rats. These rats were nuisances and the packers would put poison bread out for them. They would die and then the rats, bread, and meat would go into the hoppers together. This gives you an idea of the type of descriptive text that uh, Upton Sinclair had in uh, the jungle that actually presented a tremendous national outrage of how, at that time, meatpacking uh, was handled. This outrage inspired the development and passage of the Federal Meat Inspection Act in 1906-1907. And for the first time in U.S. food law history, we had mandatory inspection of livestock before slaughter. We had mandatory post-mortem inspection of every carcass. We had sanitary standards established for slaughterhouses and meat processing plants, and it actually authorized the USDA to do ongoing monitoring inspection of slaughter and processing operations. 
these first 1906 acts of meat inspection are actually with us today. If you walk into uh, a uh, meat packing plant, you will see beef carcasses stamped with a purple stamp, inspected USDA. Okay, so this is a hundred years old now. We have a hundred years of history of meat inspection. The first practices for this were adopted in 1906-1907. They were not adopted without a significant uh, political fight. In fact, uh, President at that time, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, was quite suspect of Upton Sinclair and his socialist uh, political leanings. And in fact, uh, in, in somewhat disbelief and defense of the industry, set up his own commissions and sent inspectors out to the Chicago meat plants. Well, although these meat specters, uh, these inspectors and these commissioners went out there uh, with a significant amount of notice, a month's worth of notice to clean up your place, they still came back with uh, what were represented as pretty disgusting stories about some of the food handling practices. And still, with that uh, prior uh, alert, so to speak, to this inspection, uh, we still ended up uh, in terms of a legislative response in the Federal Meat Inspection Act. This was followed quite closely by the F Pure Food and Drug Act. Again, there was a significant amount of activism within the government, within national communities, and with people like uh, Wiley. It was the first f comprehensive federal food law. It gave us, uh, as you can imagine, a considerable body of law, which would be later built on in terms of amendments and regulations and policy interpretations. As you can imagine, from an unregulated industry to a regulated industry, many drug companies, many food industries uh, complained uh, violently about what this was going to do in terms of managing and their ability to make a profit in the marketplace. Many of the legal cases at the time uh, pointed out some of the strengths and weaknesses of the law, although we did result in many, many good things in terms of a regulatory foundation for pure food and drugs. Some of the problems that were associated with, uh, we still had food adulteration. There was a, lot, a lack of inspection and inspection services, a lack of perhaps punch behind the law in terms of punishment. There were few standards in terms of what really was pure, what was allowed, what was not allowed, what was toxic, what was not toxic. We had food coloring, we had tainted water and water supply systems. We wouldn't have the Safe Drinking and Water Act for perhaps almost another uh, 60 years uh, later, 70 years later. Uh, there was limited analytical techniques. Uh, the science at the time in the early 1900s was extremely limited in terms of its ability to analyze for the target toxins of concern. Uh, there really wasn't a, uh, a tremendous amount of uh, a motivation for the industry itself to self-police and in fact the burden of proof was on the Food and Drug Administration and the, the Board of Chemistry and so in fact uh, it was only the allowed by the resources of the FDA at that time which were pretty limited to look up and uh, perhaps investigate and sometimes investigate after a toxicological incident uh, that there was in fact with a, a problem with a particular food or a particular drug. One of those problems actually arose in 1937 with a significant incident in U.S. food and drug law history, and this is the elixir of sulfonilamid uh, incident. Uh, this was in uh, 1937 again. Uh, another term for this is the raspberry flavored death. As a background for this, I can tell you that sulfonilamide was the first generation of the sulfa drugs, the antibiotics that were uh, used. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, since their advent saved many, many, many lives, uh, it was the first uh, highly uh, active uh, antimicrobial antibiotic uh, in use in medicine. Uh, this particular incident uh, was the result of one of the drug companies, in this case Massengill, who in responding to some needs in the marketplace decided to put out a liquid form of this particular drug and therefore they flavored it with raspberry. At the time, unfortunately, one of their formulation chemists found that this particular uh, chemical compound, which wasn't particularly soluble, 
was in fact soluble in some organic uh, solvents and chose, uh, unfortunately, ethylene glycol, uh, which is the principal component of antifreeze, uh, potent kidney toxin. And so uh, what we found in this particular incident was uh, many deaths. I'll go ahead and read this. This is a letter by a doctor who actually in his practice used this particular product. Uh, this is in 1937. Nobody but Almighty God and I can know what I have been through these past few days. I have been familiar with death in the years since I received my MD from Tulane University School of Medicine with the rest of my class in 1911. Covington County has been my home. I have practiced here for years. Any doctor who has practiced more than a quarter of a century has seen his share of death. But to realize that six human beings, all of them my patients, one of them my best friend, are dead because they took the medicine I prescribed for them innocently, and to realize that the medicine I had used for years in such cases suddenly had become a deadly poison in its newest and most modern form, as recommended by a great and reputable pharmaceutical firm in Tennessee, well, that realization has given me such days and nights of mental and spiritual agony as I have, as I did not believe a human being could undergo and survive. I have known hours when death for me would be a welcome relief from this agony. These sorts of instances of uh, uh, toxic drugs in the marketplace actually highlighted many of the problems of the initial version of the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. There were several attempts to revise the act. There was industry uh, opposition to this, uh, even with a hundred deaths from the elixir sulfonilamide and other incidents. There was a complete revision, and in 1938, stimulated uh, by this particular episode, we have the 1938 Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And this particular act included cosmetics for the first time and therapeutic devices. And so uh, if you go back uh, to the ancient medical literature in terms of uh, the early part of the last century, you will see many devices, some of them electrical, um, to cure all sorts of diseases. Uh, uh, they'll, they'll give you a good laugh if you ever try to explore that. Uh, it required for the first time pre-market safety testing of drugs. Um, it actually prohibited toxic substances and foods unless unavoidable or required by processing. There was as well an authority for factory inspections for the first time. And so this in fact was a very significant change in management of the production facilities of food materials, drug materials, and things that were going to be used in medicine and in food production. This actually uh, changed because proof of fraud was no longer required uh, to stop false claims. Uh, so in fact, they had to prove certain health benefits. And so the whole idea of patent or quack medicines uh, uh, went away fairly rapidly after that, or at least had the ability to be brought up on charges under a regulation. Um, before this as well, uh, there were no necessarily tolerances authorized for food additives, including pesticides that were becoming a part of the agricultural landscape. Uh, in the early 1900s, several very, very active chemicals were being uh, developed and actually used. Uh, they were used on the basis of efficacy. There, wasn't, there was only limited uh, understanding of their potential toxicity in the human food chains. There were standards uh, under FDCA uh, developed for many foods in terms of levels of safe chemicals uh, and toxins. Now, there were some problems with uh, the enforcement in the 1938 FDCA. Uh, the burden of proof was still on the FDA. Uh, on the FDA. World War II uh, came about the same time as we entered the 1940s. There's a tremendous amount of uh, new work and challenges in terms of uh, just having food. There were food rations going on in the United States, a tremendous amount of diversion of national treasure towards the war effort. Uh, we had as well a development of new drugs, uh, new chemicals, uh, and new processing techniques, new technologies uh, sometimes spun off from military technologies. If, for example, you had to deliver safe, preserved food to the troops, there had to be a lot of research in terms of food preservation techniques. Some of those involved food additives. 
1949, a special committee was formed to investigate chemicals in food because for the first time we were starting to identify that, in fact, this industrialization of the food system had some potential for problems in terms of food toxicity. This particular uh, committee was chaired by James T. Delaney of New York, and you will hear me recite the name Delaney, Delaney Clause, Delaney Paradox several times during this uh, particular course because of its importance in terms of our U.S. regulatory food history. Now, the Chemicals and Food Committee actually uh, developed three major amendments to the Food, uh, uh, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. They were the Miller Pesticide Amendment in 1954, the Food Additive Amendment in 1958, and the Color Additive Amendment in 1960. The first time this particular committee, uh, through its amendments, uh, legislative amendments, actually shifted the burden of proof of safety to industry. Um, it also made it uh, an unmanageable situation in terms of the amount of resources that FDA had, made it quite a bit more manageable. Now, in terms of the burden of proof and safety, uh, uh, burden of proof of safety to industry transfer, um, you have to recognize that, uh, in fact, um, here we had uh, perhaps an economic incentive to cheat by the same industry that was charged with declaring that their practices were safe. And so the first several decades of this particular thing, and in fact, even through the 1970s, there were several incidents where, in fact, uh, there was fraudulent data actually put forth uh, in support of particular health claims or particular safety claims of food additives, food practices, drug uh, practices. And so that actually spawned a whole other piece of legislation, uh, good laboratory practices, CG, uh, GLPs, and also CGMPs, or good manufacturing practices, which are regulatory standards of data submission in support of food health claims, drug claims, toxicity or safety claims associated with the manufacturers of these particular materials. Well, these amendments uh, to the FDCA, the one uh, that deals with pesticides is the Miller Pesticide Amendment of 1954. It authorized the establishment of tolerances for pesticides, and we will talk uh, in one of our lectures uh, specifically about pesticide residues in food. We will actually define tolerances as a legal standard. This is a, legis a, a number that appears in a regulation as the maximum amount of a particular pesticide compound in a particular food. So it authorized the establishment of these tolerances for pesticides on raw foods and in uh, some processed foods. Uh, there was some pre-market safety and efficacy testing. And efficacy testing is actually a very important part of the whole food safety continuum. Obviously, the idea of using chemicals for two reasons, one is safety and one is for economics, uh, chemicals cost money. And so it, although there might be an encouragement from a vendor to use more and more is better, uh, in fact, uh, in terms of a food safety, typically using less is better. And so how much of a chemical is used in agriculture based on the production, the agronomic aspects of the crop production? Uh, what's the minimum dose in terms of affecting uh, pest control is part of the standard. The amendments to FDC, the Miller Pesticide Amendment, actually allowed risk versus benefits evaluation, and there was some enforcement provisions in terms of tolerances. In other words, for the first time ever, uh, food could be taken off the market because of tolerance uh, violations. Now, in the food additive amendments in 1958 and the color additive amendments in 1960, we saw some major changes in the FDA approach. Uh, there was mandatory pre-market testing for safety. Uh, it, again, for these two additives, shifted the burden of proof to industry, and so data would have to be submitted with uh, the request to allow a particular food in industry. Now, in 1958, there were some ideas of what was safe and what was not safe. And among scientists, for example, if you were to add salt to a product, you could regard that as generally safe, generally recognized as safe, or grass. 
And so in 1958, uh, there is a uh, turnover in terms of food additives and grass. And you'll hear that term several times as we start discussing food additives uh, in, in uh, more detail in further lectures. Um, there was no risk regulation with this particular uh, set of amendments. In terms of the food additives amendments and the food color amendments in 1958-1960, it did cover sweetness, preservatives, uh, animal drug residues, some cumulative pesticides in terms of ones that would accumulate up the food chain, some packaging and processing chemicals and colors. Uh, there was uh, a provision for intentional and non-intentional additives. Uh, for example, uh, contaminants to food additives. If you are dealing with a bulk chemical compound, uh, a color, if you will, uh, that is added to make a, a food a, a bright color or to maintain its color, if there was a trace uh, chemical that was in that raw chemical batch, uh, that is considered to be a non-intentional food additive. There was, in terms of the Miller Pesticide Amendment and the Food Additives uh, Amendment, the Delaney Clause, it did focus uh, entirely on carcinogens. Now, the Delaney Clause was very specific. It said that no chemical could be added to a food or animal feed that was shown to be a carcinogen by appropriate tests, and those are typically animal studies. And so if you had a chemical that in animal studies at whatever dose showed carcinogenesis, it was not allowed. There was zero tolerance, zero risk allowed under the Delaney Clause. Now remember, we're talking about 1958, 1959, 1960 time period in terms of the research capabilities, the analytical capabilities of science then versus now zoom ahead to uh, decades later, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and even present day. Um, there was a dilemma for cumulative and non-cumulative pesticides under these amendments in Section 408 and 409 that did have uh, some impact in terms of how we actually interpreted the Delaney Clause. Delaney Clause actually had its first impact in U.S. Uh, society in 1959 in something that has been called the Cranberry Incident, and as it turned out, there was a detection by Food and Drug Administration scientists of aminotriazole, an herbicide, that is used in cranberries. Aminotriazole uh, was known as a carcinogen. Uh, it was detected in processed cranberry products. Uh, there was a recall of cranberry products during the Thanksgiving time period of 1959. There you have the potential for a significant amount of public impact. If I read from Time magazine, said uh, at the time, this is November 23rd, uh, 1959, said Secretary Fleming at a press conference specially called just 17 days before Thanksgiving, two batches of the cranberry crop from Washington and Oregon have been found contaminated from improper use of the toxic weed killer called aminotriazole. The chemical, he said, had been tested on rats and had caused thyroid cancer. And so consumers should avoid buying Washington and Oregon cranberries until a way is found to separate the good berries from the bad. In fact, said Fleming, housewives should be on the safe side and not buy any, unless they could be sure that the berries were not tainted. As his advice hit the headlines, housewives, supermarkets, and restaurants swept cranberries off their shelves, shopping lists, and menus. And so you see that, in fact, for the first time ever, the precautionary aspects of the Food, uh, Drug, and Cosmetic Act and the Delaney Clause actually started having an impact in the household, an impact that caused a tremendous amount of concern. Some people will go back and call this a scare, but if you talk about the people that were actually doing it, these were scientists that were acting on the basis of best available data under the regulations uh, of the, the law of the land, if you will, at that time. At that time, also, we had uh, the development of an heightened concern over pesticide use as well, uh, particularly the environmental impacts of pesticides. Now, these concerns have been brewing for about five or six years prior to the publication of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Um, in 1962, this book was published. In 1963, Rachel Carson uh, died of breast cancer. 
Uh, one of the famous quotes from this particular book, in fact, in the frontispiece, uh, it says, over increasingly large areas of the United States, spring now comes unheralded by the return of birds, and early mornings are strangely silent where they were once filled with the beauty of birdsong. It's the idea there, the connection between the entire uh, ecological system that in killing off the insects, the pests, uh, if you will, in agriculture, we were killing off the food supply or having a direct impact on more favored or favorable species such as birds. The idea uh, in Rachel Carson's Silent Spring was that uh, there was uh, a problem that we were not addressing via federal legislation, via management of these, uh, what I like to refer to as economic poisons, that are used in agriculture. The term economic poisons is uh, not a loaded term, it's not a pejorative. I'm actually just addressing the fact that we have a chemical that is used for target toxicity uh, to deal with pests, to deal with uh, weeds in, in agriculture. Uh, Rachel Carson was a respected author and biologist at the time. She was uh, actually one of the first uh, women employed by the United States Fish and Wildlife Service. And this book provided an expose on the damage to the environment from uh, use of pesticides, especially chlorinated pesticides. Um, this particular book, although it had a tremendous impact in the public arena, uh, when you consider uh, TV appearances, talk shows, even at the time in, in 1962, uh, it actually still was a well-referenced scientific treatise uh, in terms of its description of chemicals impacting uh, the environment and the human food chain. It was quite interesting that uh, in reading uh, Silent Spring or rereading it myself, I see uh, precautions against the uh, endocrine disruption uh, impacts of chemicals. The aspect of endocrine disruption, the fact that these chemicals might have an impact on uh, the, our uh, sex hormones uh, in nature or in humans uh, was actually uh, discussed in the book. We actually acted on that in the United States in 1996, finally, through the U.S. Uh, Food Quality Protection Act, which was an amendment uh, to the uh, pesticide legislation of previous decades. Now, the impact of Sound Spring was significant nationally. It was a plea for less harmful methods of pest control and some caution when we are using that, and perhaps a changed attitude uh, toward nature. In a certain sense, in the post-World War II uh, decades, uh, the United States uh, had come off uh, uh, a significant victory in World War II. Uh, there was uh, a tremendous impact of technology. There was a tremendous uh, uh, thinking in, in the turn of uh, the 1950s to the 1960s of better living through chemistry. We had significant amount of drugs, uh, birth control being one of them, that were developed in the late 50s, early 60s that had tremendous impact on our lives and lifestyles. This book quickly became a bestseller. Uh, and the chemical and pesticide industry was quite alarmed, and uh, having seen and read some of these, uh, there was a tremendous amount of back and forth in terms of what was right, what was wrong, uh, and a tremendous amount of personal attack on the author. There were congressional hearings. Uh, there was a presidential scientific committee that was convened to analyze some of the claims of the book. Um, and in fact, most of the claims of the book were validated. Uh, there are a couple of technical errors uh, in the book. Uh, one of the big concerns that uh, many people have about Silent Spring is that it gave us an unreasonable fear of residues, uh, residues below any sort of toxic threshold, residues that sometimes are less than the residue or the amount of the naturally occurring chemicals uh, that occur in many plant foods uh, that uh, are uh, regarded as natural uh, pesticides, compounds such as, for instance, nicotine and tobacco. Well, in terms of the impact of Silent Spring, there are some key points that the author tried to make. Uh, one was that the technology that seems harmless may have serious long-term effects on the environment. Uh, she also tried to make the point that the actions of humans have become the dominant environmental influence on the health and well-being of the planet. 
Um, it did inspire to a certain degree the birth of the U.S. environmental movement, um, and in 1992 it was actually picked as the most influential book published in the past 50 years. And so Silent Spring in a certain sense created uh, at least uh, one dimension of the consciousness of the United States about pesticides, pesticides and their impact on the environment, and also pesticide residues in food. Now, with that background and with the development of the Delaney Clause, we had a particular, during the 1960s and perhaps all the way through the 1990s, uh, a, a particular template for challenge in terms of uh, our new information, the new research that was coming out in terms of the relative risk of chemicals and the diet and workplace exposure. We had, if you remember, in the late uh, 1960s and early 70s, several incidents in terms of challenges of industrialization and urbanization in the United States. Uh, the first Earth Day in 1970, uh, the development of the United States Environmental Protection Agency in 1970, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. We had a tremendous amount of uh, uh, concern over our environment and its impact on the human food chain. And so this actually set up a particularly uh, aggressive challenge uh, in terms of using the older format of the law, including the Delaney Clause, for these modern identified problems, especially problems with chemical residues in food. Some of the problems associated with Delaney, again, this was developed in 1958, prior to a lot of developments, for instance, in analytical chemistry in the 70s, 80s, and even 90s. And so we had zero risk, so no residue detection was allowed at all. But in fact, at the same time over these decades, we were developing analytical techniques that went from the parts per million to the lower parts per billion, and finally parts per uh, uh, quadrillion and parts per trillion. And so we were actually able to see these residues at the nanogram levels in, 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 uh, in foods, far below any sort of threshold of concern in terms of uh, acute uh, toxicity. We didn't know how to interpret this. Uh, at the same time, we were exploring uh, disease manifestations of cancer, understanding the mechanisms, the biological mechanisms of cancer. We had the one-hit, one-molecule theory of cancer that if we had just one molecule of a carcinogen interacting with one cell to cause that to become a cancerous cell, that cancerous cell would then have the ability to replicate and multiply and cause cancer. So there was no concept at that time of a cancer threshold. And so with the Delaney Clause, we had a tremendous problem because most chemicals, especially given the types of testing for carcinogenicity in a chemical, uh, which typically were high-dose rat studies, uh, and, and you may have heard of some of these in terms of your own readings, of giving the animal a lot of a particular chemical compound, sometimes in excess, uh, significant excess of what a lifetime consumption for uh, a human might be of this particular chemical uh, causing cancer. There were many people that uh, came out in the 80s that were saying, you know, this is all wrong, what we're doing, we're actually uh, doing an analysis not of uh, uh, cancer, but of cell damage. That there is so much of a toxicity impact of the high dose of this we're actually causing uh, uh, mitosis, it's high cell turnover because of cellular damage that is inspiring cancer, not necessarily a molecular mechanism of cancer. And so it was the dosing strategy in these animal studies that was causing cancer, not necessarily the chemical itself. All of these created tremendous problems in terms of implementation and regulation of the Delaney Clause. This actually led up to, and we'll deal with this in our pesticide residues in food lecture in, in, in a little bit more detail, and we'll set it up for you in terms of the politics. The politics of pesticides, the politics of food is significant. Uh, these motherhood and apple pie issues uh, are, are quite uh, emotional, uh, and uh, the uh, parties involved in these debates are very passionate about uh, their, their opinions uh, and their interpretation of the data. We did have, uh, in 1996, finally, uh, a resolution of some of the problems associated with the Delaney Clause in terms of the actual implementation of a law in 1958, three, four, five decades later. 
um, it abolished the Delaney Clause for pesticides. And so the Delaney Clause still is uh, uh, involved with some food additives. There is a negligible risk standard for carcinogens, a de minimis standard, a one in a million standard. And so that one in a million standard is what is now allowed under certification of the Food and Drug Administration Commissioner as the cancer risk associated with a pesticide residue in a food product. Under petition in the Food Quality Protection Act, that can actually be increased to two in a million under a special request and if that request is accompanied by advertising of the food product that essentially it doubled your cancer risk. Not a particularly uh, uh, appetizing uh, advertisement and so the request to double the cancer risk in a food product, uh, I, I, to my knowledge, has not uh, been asked in now the 10 years uh, since the beginning of the Food Quality Protection Act. Um, there is no residue in the uh, edible portion. The tenfold safety factor for children was one of the responses of the Food Quality Protection Act uh, because at that, up to that point in time, adults were the risk model. Uh, we transferred the risk model because children have different diets. They eat more fruits and vegetables uh, on a body weight basis than adults do. And so we put a tenfold, an additional tenfold safety factor in for children as the risk model. We also developed what we refer to as a risk cup or an aggregate exposure model that uh, no matter what the chemical, uh, what's the lifetime exposure via all foods for a particular chemical and especially for those chemicals that have a common mechanism of toxicity. Uh, for example, neurotoxic chemicals like organophosphate pesticides, organophosphate insecticides. Now in terms of the uh, FDCA, um, Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, this was intended to ensure that foods are pure and wholesome, safe, and produced under sanitary conditions. It also gives us the ability to uh, manage and monitor and authorize the use of drugs and medical devices uh, that are safe and effective for their intended uses. Um, now, there has been in the past uh, uh, decade or so several pieces of legislation to work with supplements versus drugs, and there's, we'll talk about some of those uh, and how supplements are managed differently than drugs in terms of their health claims. Uh, we'll do that in other lectures for this course. The uh, FDCA actually also manages the cosmetics, which are dermal application of chemicals, when you re remember that, uh, that those are safe and made from uh, appropriate ingredients. Uh, many uh, chemicals used in cosmetics in ancient history, uh, even through uh, the uh, mid-1900s, were actually uh, lead-based uh, chemicals. Uh, Lead was a whitening agent uh, that uh, would, uh, on repeated use, cause all sorts of dermal dermatological uh, problems. Under FDCA, all labeling and packaging is truthful, informative, and non-deceptive. And so this is a substantial amount of keep it, uh, keep it correct, uh, keep it accurate in terms of the marketplace of food, drug, and cosmetics. It's a very complicated law. Uh, there are people that uh, spend their whole careers trying to understand it and uh, become a player in it, whether it's on the regulatory side or on the compliance side. It's complicated because the marketplace of products, including foods, drugs, and cosmetics, is a complicated marketplace. Many thousands of ingredients used in many thousands of different applications. There's a, it's a product of uh, many forces and legal compromises in terms of how to enact this. Remember, in the United States, we have a premise of equal treatment under the law, so we try to be very specific. We try to make sure that all cases are dealt with in an equivocal way. Um, the fundamentals of the FDCA are very simple and practical, and in fact, um, there is a standard of a reasonable certainty of no harm. And this is the first uh, federal legislation that has that as its foundation, a reasonable certainty of no harm, and it's inclusive of adulteration and misbranding in the marketplace. Now, in terms of the implementation of this body of law and the regulations that followed, we have in the U.S. Uh, uh, governmental authority uh, an executive department called the FDA. 
It actually started in the late 1800s as the Division of Chemistry um, and then the Bureau of Chemistry uh, in the late 1880s. Uh, it actually became the Food, Drug, and Insecticide Administration in the early 1920s and finally in 1931 the Food and Drug Administration under a branch of the USDA. Uh, it actually transferred uh, to the Federal Security Agency and then became the Division of Health, Education, and Welfare uh, in 1953. This, this particular uh, secretariat actually became uh, Department of Health and Human Services, DHHS, in somewhat recent time, 1979, and that's where FDA resides today in terms of its uh, uh, role within the executive branch of the federal government. Um, in 1970, we had the development of the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition. It was responsible for all policy, science, and enforcement related to human food. Okay, And so this particular division had some research capability as well as review capability of specific claims in the marketplace. We also have uh, within the FDA uh, what was referred to uh, historically as the Bureau of Veterinary Medicine. That came about in 1965. It was later changed to the Center for Veterinary Medicine, or the CVM, in 1984, and it manages animal feed and drugs in food, animal food production systems. There are some other regulatory agencies that deal with U.S. food. Uh, they include the USDA, Department of Agriculture, the U.S. EPA, which has some intersection in terms of uh, the quality, uh, the environmental impact, and the registration of pesticides used in agriculture a significant amount of crossover with FDA in terms of management of pesticides. EPA more on the initial use and the standards in terms of the crop and the field, um, with FDA being more of a food monitoring, food uh, residue uh, regulatory authority. Uh, we have NIOSH, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. We have the Consumer Product Safety Administration as well that deal with aspects of food and interfacing with consumers. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has the Food Safety Inspection Service, the FSIS, which is very active on inspecting meat, poultry, and eggs. It has the same philosophy as the Food and Drug Administration. In fact, there's a little bit of uh, overlap in terms of mission, and occasionally it uh, comes around that perhaps we should combine the FSIS with some of the FDA in terms of uh, uh, its monitoring and enforcement uh, mission. Uh, but we do have that out there in terms of managing uh, and ensuring a safe uh, and nutritious food supply. We have the Environmental Agency, uh, Protection Agency that came to us in 1970 as a result of legislation. Uh, is again an executive branch, uh, executive agency, uh, um, and it was intended actually to streamline and strengthen uh, regulation of pesticides. Uh, it consolidated responsibilities of several agencies into EPA. Uh, its intent was to protect uh, health and environment related to air, water, soil, and pollution. Uh, during the 1960s, we had several high-profile national incidents concerning air pollution. Uh, we had cities like New York and Los Angeles, which midday in the summertime, uh, you couldn't see the sky because of air pollution. We had some incidences of, uh, in Lake Erie of uh, Lake Erie waters and canals catching on fire because of the residues of industrial pollution that were on the water. Uh, we had a tremendous amount of concern in terms of our impact for the environment, and in a certain sense, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, is a response to those concerns. In terms of its management or interface with the food system in the United States, the EPA, uh, one of its primary authorities comes from the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act. Uh, first, uh, the progenitor legislation was 1947, uh, a fairly substantial change in 1972. Under the authority of the EPA as well, we also have TASCA, or the Toxic Substances Control Act. We came to us in 1976 and RECRA, the Resources Conservation and Recovery Act in 1976 as well to manage some hazardous materials. FIFRA is a major body of law under which EPA interfaces with the U.S. food system. It requires pre-market testing of pesticides. It challenges the efficacy claims and the safety claims of manufacturers, 
uh, looks at the environmental impact, the role of this particular chemical in terms of its potential to have impacts on local and larger scale ecology. It establishes the testing procedures required uh, for uh, pesticide registration. We'll go through some of these te pesticide testing procedures in our pesticide residues in food lectures. It establishes tolerances. Again, those are the legal standards, the maximum contaminants allowed of a particular pesticide in a particular commodity. Uh, and uh, these are actually written into uh, the law. Uh, there is a post-market environmental surveillance monitoring, and quite often that is handed off to the states and the State Department of Agriculture's through what a process called primacy. It allows, for instance, in our case, the state of Idaho to actually manage and monitor uh, pesticide use, pesticide residues, and food products produced in our particular state. FIFRA also uh, controls registration of pesticide uh, producing facilities. Uh, it does the um, uh, classification of pesticides in terms of how it's being used. Is it a restricted use? Uh, it bans pesticides, takes them off the market based on data that uh, uh, suggests or documents uh, undesirable attributes. Uh, some of these undesirable attributes could just be the overall toxicity of the chemical, the persistence of the chemical, uh, and its uh, toxicological uh, endpoint. If it has a developmental or neurotoxic endpoint, it's typically going to be looked at uh, with a high degree of seriousness versus perhaps some other chemicals that uh, may be herbicidal in their action. Uh, there is a risk-benefit evaluation. In other words, uh, if uh, a particular commodity uh, does not have uh, any control for a particular pathogen, there might be uh, a way to work that into the evaluation uh, to manage uh, the relative risk associated with using that in the food system. TASC is a piece of legislation, although not directly related uh, to food or food production, actually because it does control toxic chemicals. Many of those toxic chemicals have the ability to impact the environment and therefore impact the human food chain. So there is a connectedness to managing the environment and managing food production in that environment. TASCA, or the Toxic Substances Control Act, was intended to bring industrial chemicals under the oversight of the EPA. In fact, what we do in TASCA is actually, uh, it doesn't regulate all chemicals, but those that pose unreasonable risk to health. There is a review of new chemicals that come to the marketplace to make sure that they don't have these unintended consequences. In fact, uh, TASCA is a part of uh, what is, uh, uh, for the past 20, 25 years, come to be known as life cycle risk assessment. Uh, the fact that these chemicals actually that we use for various applications could have some unintended consequences. You may have read uh, yourself about uh, some of the concerns of late of some of the byproducts of Teflon. Teflon is not necessarily used directly in the human food system, and in fact it's a polymer and typically Plastics uh, and polymers are, are not of, of necessarily higher risk in terms of consumption. However, some of the breakdown products or some of the manufacturing chemicals uh, associated with Teflon have appeared in uh, the human bloodstream, whether that's by the sprays uh, that are used to protect fabrics and carpets or whether it's from Teflon use in, in cookingware. Uh, the fact that this chemical has actually started appearing in the human bloodstream without any necessarily a recognized uh, toxic impact, uh, there is general agreement among uh, the medical profession, among risk assessment scientists, that it's probably just not a good thing to have a chemical uh, be where it's not supposed to be. And so there actually have been some voluntary withdrawals of particular products that use Teflon uh, uh, from the marketplace. TASCA does try to uh, prevent recurrence of industrial exposure and accidents, things like uh, asbestos, methylmercury, uh, PCBs uh, were actually banned un and uh, they're monitored under the Toxic Substances Control Act. There is, uh, under TASCA, as I said, a pre-manufactured testing of new chemicals and new uses of old chemicals. Again, the idea there is to make sure that we, from a life cycle assessment, don't have some sort of uh, undue risk out there. 
another life cycle assessment. Most of you have heard about chlorofluorocarbons that uh, have contributed to the destruction of the ozone layer. Uh, that's a, sense, a fairly sensational aspect uh, that actually garnered a Nobel Prize for the scientists from the University of Santa Barbara that discovered it. Um, but the uh, atmospheric pollution caused by a refrigerant chemical and its potential to react in a photolysis mechanism with the uh, uh, delicate photochemistry uh, of the production of the ozone layer that protects us from UV uh, was something that wasn't necessarily planned in terms of the production of those particular chemicals. And so nowadays uh, we try to take, take the long view, so to speak, of chemicals that are used not only in the food system but in any place that might have an environmental impact and therefore a threat to the quality of the environment and a threat to public health. Another body of law that is managed by uh, EPA is RCRA, the Resources Conservation and Recovery Act. This particular act is actually used to manage active production of hazardous waste. It controls the generation, shipping, storage, treatment, and record keeping of hazardous waste. And that could be from a manufacturing industrial facility, from a university laboratory, for example. If we don't manage hazardous materials well, they will probably end up somewhere in the environment and therefore have the potential to enter the food system. And that's one of the ideas of uh, management of these particular wastes. We have under RICRA a cradle-to-grave ethic. In fact, if you are a generator of a hazardous waste, you own that waste. You cannot transfer that ownership, even though you might hand it off to a waste management specialist you still, your name, uh, your industry's name, your company name, still is attached to the manifest of that. So it identifies the hazardous waste in terms of what they are, what the mixture is. Uh, it actually seeks to uh, identify them not only on chemical uh, contents, but also whether or not, for instance, it's flammable or explosive. Uh, there are some guidelines, and it, in fact, does actually talk about storage facilities and management in terms of things like incineration or destruction of particular hazardous waste. In terms of other EPA programs, again, because they impact the environment, they impact the food system, the Water Pollution Control Act, or as it's now known, the Clean Water Act, uh, which manages our natural waters, uh, keeping them, quote, fishable and swimmable. We have the Safe Drinking Water Act that manages uh, potential contamination of drinking water. And we have the Clean Air Act that manages uh, the nation's air. Another uh, group that actually is managed that has an interface with the food system is NIOSH, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. This develops work standards, uh, workplace standards for health in terms of exposure to toxic chemicals, airborne chemicals, uh, noise, uh, unsafe working conditions. Uh, it allows for training of personnel and, and workforce education. Uh, as unfortunately, uh, in terms of there is a, a retrospect, if there is an industrial accident, uh, there is an investigation and perhaps a uh, finding under occupational safety and health law. There is the CPSA, or the Consumer Product Safety Administration. All of us have seen news bulletins on product uh, removals from, from store shelves because the CPSA, the Consumer Product Safety Administration, has declared them unsafe. Quite often, it's unsafe for children, uh, whether it be car seats or toys that are uh, perhaps choking hazards. Um, the CPSA manages any product for use and consumption or enjoyment in a recreation or other sort of manner. And there are some interfaces in terms of food systems. Uh, for instance, uh, baby bottle nipples uh, would be managed in terms of the types of rubbers and plastics that might be used. The idea of the CPSA is to protect the public from risk or injury from consumer products, and it labels mostly by labeling. Okay, And so occasionally you'll see risk hazards, uh, for instance, on toys not to be used by children under three because of a choking hazard. The CPSA also sets some standards and evaluates safety of various consumer products, flammable clothing, child-proof lids, uh, and some household chemicals. It does uh, exclude other items. It doesn't have authority in terms of, for example, pesticides or alcohol, which is managed by ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. 
agency, um, and there is uh, uh, no pre-market authority. They do not review products before uh, they come out onto the marketplace. It's typically after it enters the marketplace. They do the risk assessment and the advisories, and if there is an inherent or complete risk, uh, they will actually uh, force the removal of a particular product under its authority uh, from the marketplace. So that gives you an idea of some of the background that we have with uh, U.S. food regulation history. Uh, we have had uh, perhaps uh, well over 150 years of what I'll call active federal uh, uh, regulation and responsibility uh, in this area. But in fact, concern over distributed food system and marketplace ethics has gone on uh, since we have, uh, in fact, the earliest societies on record. Um, what we've done in terms of food toxicology is these laws, although there is a cost for this uh, in terms of the cost of products, the cost of pre-market testing, and therefore those costs are reflected in the uh, cost of food, uh, the benefit that we get from that is a safer food supply and less risk to the public health. Next time here, what we'll do is we'll discuss some more fundamental concepts, uh, perhaps an introduction uh, to the concepts of toxicology to start laying a background, a uh, little bit of a foundation for the early part of this course where we do a developed uh, and more intense uh, uh, investigation and discussion of toxicology. Until that time, we'll see you later.